Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Started in 2008, Big Think is a kind of online think tank of big ideas from some of the most creative thinkers on the planet. On the podcast, we revisit those ideas in new ways. Our producers surprise me and my guests with short interview clips from Big Think's archives, ideas that we didn't necessarily come here expecting to discuss. I'm very happy to be here today with Arielle Levy. After 12 years at New York Magazine, Arielle became a staff writer at The New Yorker, where she's written, among other things, about sex, drugs, madness, feminism, and Silvio Berlusconi. Her 2006 book, Female Chauvinist Pigs, looked at how the women's movement had led to a point where Girls Gone Wild was seen by some as a form of empowerment. Her new book, The Rules Do Not Apply, is a memoir that grew out of the devastating loss of her child. Welcome to Think Again. Right. Thanks. It seems to me that this book is a departure. So, you know, it's, it, it goes into new territory in terms of the things that you've written. So how do you like usually find your stories? How have you in the past, like what makes you It's always a like a frantic scramble. It's always a scramble. It's always like in between, like there you- Desperation. You know, yeah, what. <laughs> it's always like I'm in the desperation part of the um, wave right now. Like I just finished this story about Elizabeth Strout and that was a delightful experience. But now I gotta find another story. It's, mm. And this is, this is how it is. It's always, and it's always like in between stories you think, I am never gonna find another story. Like this is it. Right, this right. is this is the time when the well runs dry, and then eventually something comes so up. So it's so it's gun to head. It's 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 survival. It's doing your thing. But like looking back, I mean, is that there must be, and I think you talk about this in the book, a pattern to the kinds of stories that end up sucking you in. Well, I have particular interests, you know. And how would you kind of? I don't well, know, I mean, I, for a long point. time, what I was primarily interested was writing stories about unconventional women, writing stories about unconventional female lives. Right. Um, you know, I feel like growing up, I was desperate for more stories of female adventurers, you right. know? And it's like, you know, a girl can't live on Pippi Longstocking alone. I mean, obviously, I'm not the only person doing this. Like, lots and lots of women now are sure. doing this. but. But this is, you know, this is what I've wanted to do too, and what I have done for 20 years is look for stories about women like Diana Nyad, who swam from Cuba to Florida when she was 64 years old. She's the first person to do that swim, or Edith Windsor, who was the plaintiff in the Defense of Marriage uh, Supreme Court case that brought down the Defense of Marriage Act and effectively legalized same-sex marriage in this country. I've been looking for women who are leading exceptional, unconventional lives. Right, 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 right. So. Um I mean, you come across like both in person and in your prose as like very strident and very definitive. Like, do you also, is there also a part of your life where you are just like chilled out and speculative and meditative or are you always like running and like intense? It's funny you should say that yeah. because like if you read the rules do not apply, so much of it. Which I did, so is if about, I miss something. No, 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 I think you're right. I mean, I think you're not the first person to tell me I'm assertive. And that's not a criticism. Oh, I don't care. But I'm just saying the book, so much of it is about ambivalence and confusion Indeed. and searching. Yeah, yeah. So in that way, like, yeah, I don't have a mellow vibe, but yeah. I, would, I would take issue with the idea that the book is about someone who knows exactly what she's talking about. Certainly like, I think not. it's a book about searching. No, no, indeed. And in yeah. fact, like what's interesting about it is that it like seems as if 
I mean, look, all of your stories, uh, the writing of them involves a searching process. Yeah. You're going, you're yeah. trying to find out, et cetera. But like, it seems like that's kind of the core of the book and maybe what makes this moment in your life different is that you come up against these ambivalences. You're sort of forced to confront them. It's, it seems like a different thing for you in some ways. I think that I have a forceful personality and always have and that's just the way my character is. The way my brain is, like I don't think I know what I'm talking about ever, you know what I mean? Like, And I don't think I pretend to. I right, think right, my, right. my writing is always about figuring out. And actually one of the things I didn't like about writing Female Chauvinist Pigs, my first book, is that I put myself in a position where I needed to be a kind of pundit you know what I mean? Like it was a polemic and I didn't know until I wrote it that I don't want to be a polemicist and I don't want to pretend I'm an expert. I'm a storyteller. Right. Like it's just, it's funny. Like in that book there was an explicit critique there was, there of was, what was going on. I was, was making on. an argument. Like, yeah, yeah. I was, argu I was arguing something. And I don't want to argue. I want to tell stories. Like as assertive, I mean you're, you're right and it's not something that hurts my feelings. Like I know who I am. I am assertive. Right. I am forceful. But that's just a character. It's not the way my brain works. I don't right. want to be making an argument or trying to pretend I know. Sure. I want to be telling a story. Yeah, and I wouldn't say that this or any of the other writing of yours that I've read comes across as you pretending to know or wanting to. No, I don't sound, know. You know. Yeah, and you and you actually talk about that a lot in the book as well. Yeah. That like all my life, you say this a few times. Like all my life, I've been told, I've been called like too loud, too much. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, this is something that like people have been, I guess the world has been kind of like bugging you about something that's inherent to your just energy. It doesn't like, bug me anymore. No, but I mean, they've been yeah. after you like, you oh, know, yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but but I mean, it's something that you, when I was a little girl, yeah, it really hurt my feelings and I thought, what's wrong with me? Right. You know, now I'm like, no, it's fine. Uh -huh. I'm forceful. Like, yeah, yeah. that's who I am. You know, I imagine that there are a lot of people, like when, when devastating things happen in people's lives, people tend to like to wrap, or a lot of people wrap themselves in kind of clouds of sentiment and distance from the things. You do the exact opposite of that. Like, there's no way to talk about this without talking about this. I mean, the, this sort of central event of the book is the, the loss of your son, yeah. who is your first and only child That's that right. you tried to have. Yeah. And, um, Not the only child I tried to have. He's the only child I had. had. Uh, right, right, right. <laughs> I tried. A lot. Oh, sure. I that's did right. nothing but try for years. Right, right, Subsequently, right. I just did not succeed. And, you know, in the article that you first wrote, the piece you first wrote in The New Yorker about this, which then sort of evolves into this book, yeah. looks very clearly at the stillborn baby himself, at the experience. Like, not stillborn. Not stillborn. Stillborn means. Oh, that sorry, the baby, born. Don't, don't worry about it. But the, stillborn, just to clarify, means the baby's born dead. And my baby was born he was alive. alive. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that, but I mean the the experience, the vi the visuals, and, sure. and the whole detailed experience of like holding him and looking at him and all of that mm -hmm. in a way that I think a lot of people would be afraid to do, right? Or would want to kind of wrap it in like, oh, this terrible thing happened to yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. So for you, what's that about? You know, it's like, just not who I am. Like my, I don't know what you want to call it. My coping mechanism, my personality, right. what who I am is head on. So when I 
when in the essay you're referring to, Thanksgiving in Mongolia, when I went into labor in my hotel room in Mongolia and, and had this baby who died, my impulse, I mean, my compulsion mm. was to talk about it, right. was to talk about it to whoever would listen, you know, my friends, my family, right. you know, the woman at the store who I went in to see two weeks after I got back from Mongolia because I needed to get a new bra because your body gets all changed. And I said, hi, I need a new bra. I don't know what size I am because I just had a baby. He died, but the good news is now I'm fat. I mean, right. that happened. And she was freaked out. You, you uh, right Yeah, like, wouldn't yeah, you yeah. be? She was yeah, like, yeah. wow. Um, <laughs> no, that poor girl. But, um, but I'm just saying, like, I am not a person who pushes things down. Right. I push things out. That's who I am. I've always been a communicator, you know, verbally and on the page. And writing about it, writing about um, the experience in Mongolia, you know, yeah, people were like, oh, that's brave. It didn't feel brave to me. It felt necessary. It felt necessary. I mean, for one thing, as you say, like I think the experience I see a lot of my friends having, you know, part of being a parent is gazing at your child, is looking at this human person sure. that you made and just marveling like, oh my God, I made a person out of my body. Like, how is this possible? You know, you just look at them and they're so beautiful and they look like people. Right. <laughs> and everyone else looks at them and it's just this marvelous thing. No one ever saw my son alive except for me. So writing about it was a way of gazing, was a way of wondering at this person who I had made, and also of announcing to whoever cared to read it, this person existed. This was a person who lived on Earth for 10 minutes, and whether anyone saw him besides me or not, he existed, and I, I wish to say so, because right. I'm his mother. Right, right. You know, right. it's important to me. Sure. For you, like processing or going, you know, talking, writing, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is that helpful in processing or is that also delaying processing? Is that a little of both? Like, you know, it's, what's you know, going on? It's difficult there? to say because I don't have a control group, right? Like, <laughs> I know. Yeah, I, you're I've only, only you. ever yeah, yeah. grieved <laughs> the loss of my son and my spouse in my house because it wasn't just the baby. I also lost my marriage and my home yeah, within, you know, a month that of that. Minute, so. And I've only ever grieved that loss and written a book about it. I've never had the experience of grieving that loss and not writing a book about it, right. so I can't compare them. I don't know if I've healed just because time has passed or if because you know writing the book and talking about it has helped. I'll, I'll never know, and who cares? Like, the, the point is, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, whatever. Yeah, yeah. The part of, you know, first of all, writing the book was not anything other than what I felt compelled to do. I mean, which makes right. perfect sense. I've always sure. written about everything, so I wrote about this. But a happy byproduct of writing about this is that I've had an amazing opportunity to connect with other women, particularly old birds. You can't imagine how many old ladies write me and say, you know, I'm in my 80s. I had four miscarriages. They, each one was devastating. I felt completely isolated, I felt completely bereft, and I couldn't talk about it. There was no way to share it. My husband didn't understand. I didn't feel like right. I could talk to other people. And then I heard you on the radio or I read your this or that, and I felt comfort or connection or a sense of the opposite of alone. 
you know, and that That's interesting, is a yeah. huge honor. And I can't, I don't know how else to say. I just, I did this reading in San Francisco and this woman raised her hand and she goes, I am, I have three children who are alive. I lost four babies. I'm 77 and I miss every one of them. And I was just like, this is such a privilege that I get to participate in this conversation with these women. It's really, I mean, now that I think about it, that it's like losing a baby in that way is basically, un, it's a silent, invisible thing in our society. Like we don't, there, and I don't know, I don't quite understand why. Like you're not really, I do. Yeah, okay. Because, first of all, the sense of shame you feel as a woman I see. for failing right. in this way. You know, I mean, it feels like your child is dead and a little bit, it feels like you killed him. And that is a bad feeling. You know, that feels devastating and shameful. Right. And I think in general, it's not just about miscarriage. I mean, I think that there's all sorts of primal animal female stuff that is not, a, is not particularly you know, well covered in literature, art, public conversation. I mean, right. <laughs> menstruation, infertility, pregnancy, childbirth, miscarriage, menopause, big things in the lives of half the human population. Big things right. that are not talked about. In a way, I think about it, you know, like the, you know, men men can kind of do the Cartesian like split of of body mind in a way because aside from you know aside from maybe prostate cancer and like aching limbs later and like sexual urges like there's they're not we are not so like our our bodies don't have to be such a big part of our lives. You I know, absolutely like, agree with you. I, yeah. think it's, I think it's a huge difference actually between men and women. I was saying to. My dad recently, I was like, imagine if blood came out your penis every month right. for days on end. He was like, I would not like that. <laughs> I was like, I know you wouldn't. That is what it means to be a woman. We bleed all the bloody time. <laughs> and, it, and it's a funny thing that like, you know, I mean, I think it makes a certain amount of sense, right? It's like we've been trying for a while now to be like, could you please take us seriously as intellectuals and competent members of society like we have not wanted to focus on what goes on in the red tent you know <laughs> but I think we're at a point where perhaps we can handle that like perhaps as a society we can handle the reality that a woman can run a company or be president god I wish that were the case and also admit that there is an animal human female thing going on right that's different that's different than being a man like it's gonna have to women are gonna have to i guess invent how to write and and talk about that in different ways because but i mean we it often gets like in literature i mean there's so much sort of i don't know what seems to me sort of fuzzy spiritual women's talk about this stuff where it's like the moon and the, i mean yeah, yeah. I, and i know that's real but like but, but where it gets kind of but that's exactly why in some way like i wanted to, why I wrote about yeah. blood and placentas and umbilical cords right. and all the shit and lactate mm. you know what I mean like that's why I you know was I guess what some people would call 
graphic, but it wasn't it learned it wasn't really if I'm honest with you, it wasn't really as calculated as that nor need it be. I'm a right. reporter. I've been a reporter for 20 years. It's my job to look at a situation and and ascertain and communicate the salient details. Well, what are the salient details when you give birth on the bathroom floor? Right. The blood, the baby, the placenta, the terror, the shock, and the oceanic loss. Right. that follows, you know, the feeling of oceanic loss that follows. So I was merely reporting accurately. It doesn't actually require some special skill set. And we don't need to remake the wheel here and have like women figure out a new way. All you have to do is accurately report. Sure. No, I guess what I'm saying is, yeah, no, I, I, I don't want to place some kind of aesthetic burden on women that shouldn't be there. I, I'm, I'm talking more about like, it hasn't entered so much into the Agreed. literature yes. That's or right. whatever. It's one thing to write an essay or or, or to report in detail on yeah. something. It's another to write poetry or to write a novel, like to, to fold that. And and I don't know, maybe it comes in in, in the poetry, same way. In poetry, there's more like, of it. If you re There's more writing about that kind of stuff right, in poetry. Women right. have hit it in poetry. Okay. Actually, I would say that's where it is. Where it's it in, is. Okay. in the dreamy realm of poetry. I would say Song in... Song lyrics, I'm imagining. You know, like, yeah. I think uh, that in, but in the very kind of um, head-on, direct, like all the things you were calling me at the beginning of the interview, <laughs> none of which are inaccurate. That kind of, I mean, I think that's why that essay, Thanksgiving in Mongolia, had an impact and why it right. like was a thing, was because it somehow was different to read about a woman's primal animal experience in that way. I think it's also, I think people also don't expect the woman who experienced that emotionally to be able to look at it so so clearly in in its physical detail as yeah. well. I think that that is also shocking to people and somehow they don't understand there's almost a pressure to kind of make it vague and emotional, you know, it seems. It's or an expectation that somehow you're going to abstract yourself from it or And yet people you know, must be hungry for it because the response to that so. essay yeah. Yeah was positive. It wasn't um, mm -hmm. it wasn't people saying you should be quiet. Okay. You know what I mean? Like the response yeah, yeah. to that essay was very positive. And the response to the book has been positive, frankly. Like that's great. Yeah. You know, like I haven't felt people don't seem so shocked. People seem relieved to be talking about these things. And that's been my experience. That's great. Yeah, it's been it's been nice for me. I'll tell you, <laughs> yeah, sure, it's much sure. better than if I was walking around and people were <laughs> throwing tomatoes at Attacking me. Yeah. You constantly. Absolutely. Um, I want to ask, uh, before we get on to the surprise uh, conversation starter things, um, I want to ask about the ayahuasca experience that you write about. Oh, because I'd love to I talk think ayahuasca is awesome and as a cultural phenomenon, it's fascinating, right? And, and your article is really interesting. So, yeah, like, I read, your, I read your article, and you, so you went, so I should give the listeners a little background. Ayahuasca, which you may or may not know, is a sort of ancient, Central and South American, primarily. It's like a Peruvian hallucinogen. Peruvian. Okay, yeah. You mix two things, the chacruna and the banisteriopsis. They're two plants. Right. And you mix them, and you take it, and you have incredible hallucinations where you see your death and, you know, find a sense of wholeness and maybe see God, unless you don't. Right. Because I, I took it, and I was all set. I was like, oh my God, it's so funny. I was so like scared and ready and it was this big deal and I was like, here I go. 
I am going to the spirit world. I was like, maybe I'll see the baby. Like, maybe I'll see my ancestors. I did not see any of those things. I just saw a room full of hippie chicks vomiting. That's that, what I saw. Well, that's right. And that's what you described in, yeah. the, in the, you know, like, I, yeah. the, the experience is meant to be, like, incredibly internal and transformative. And your experience is, 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 is like a cartoonish image of all these people around you. you Which know. is not to say it's not a real thing. Like, I do not mean to suggest that people aren't really getting great stuff out of ayahuasca. I've talked to so many people who are like, it changed my life. Right. And I, all I have to say to them is, I am jealous. Would you do it again? Or was, I mean, the, was the experience of watching people vomiting too much? Well, it wasn't just watching them. I vomited. People right. vomited on me. I mean, it was a, it was a real vomitorium in there. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I am vaguely tempted to do it again because just because people I love and respect keep telling me, like, it, it changed my life in all these interesting, intense ways that I would like to experience. I probably won't do it again, though, because, like, I really psyched myself up to do this. You know, like, you have to go on a special diet, and it's a whole thing. Right. And it was just such a bust. It was such a vomit bust. Oh, my God. That uh, I don't know if I can quite get it up to do it again. You know, the interesting thing about it is that, like, this is now a phenomenon in Silicon Valley, which you talk about a little bit. And, like, and that, that part... What do you think about all that? Because like I, you know, it's easy to dismiss these things and say like, oh look, you know, a bunch of jerks out in Silicon Valley are now trying to be more productive by yeah. going into the spirit realm or whatever. But so what? Yeah, what's your take on that? Well, I mean, first of all, think... I don't think everybody in Silicon Valley is a jerk. And second of all, I think anyone <laughs> who wants to go to the spirit realm, that's great. I mean, I would, I'd like to join you there. Right. Who, who doesn't want to go to the spirit realm? Right. I mean, I think that's part of why you know to bring it full circle. That's part of what I was writing about, right? I wasn't just writing about blood and milk coming out of my boobies. I was also writing about an encounter, a life and death encounter, right. and a contemplation of what a soul is. It does, is there a, what, what was that, you know? Yeah. So I'm all for visiting the spirit realm. Right. And if I thought ayahuasca would get me there, I would do it again. I just do not have any evidence to suggest that that's the case, because I ate it, and it didn't. I did not go nowhere. Sure. Except vomit town. That's crazy because it is. It is. Yeah. It's. It's the active chemical in there is DMT, which is a very powerful hallucinogen supposedly, and the uh, and the other one is. Well, the know, other one is just a. Some MAOI. That's right. Which, inhibitor. So it makes it so your body. Can process DMT and keep, orally yeah. instead of this enzyme in your liver, what do you call it? Neutralizing it. Right. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, yeah, that's really interesting that you had, you should probably do it again. Well, <laughs> you're acting like you can just go to the ayahuasca store and like buy it and drink it and it's no, just like, oh, no. You have to you find know. some hippie to give it to you. Yeah, I know. They're you're like, I know which hippie to <laughs> um, What was I going to say? But no, but going back to something you just said um, about going into the spirit realm, I mean, we talk a lot, like too much in our culture about transformative experiences. People like everything is transformative. It's kind of like I think an overused thing. But like this, your the experiences you write about in this book, both in terms of your relationship and and the loss of the child, were clearly transformative for you. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about like from where you are now, like what how so? Like, what did they change? Sure, How absolutely. have you changed as a result? Not that it's like, 
they exist for you, but like, you know. No, I know exactly what you're saying, yeah. and, I, and I know the answer. The answer is I was, to, a, to, to, a, to some extent, I was liberated from my illusion of control. I think truly relinquishing the illusion of control is a life's work. I don't mean to suggest that I've reached, you know, a heightened consciousness, but it is certainly the case that when you lose that much, that fast, it gets through to you like, oh, I am not in charge. The whole, the skill set and the mindset that serves me as a writer, having authorial control and taking information and making it mean something and analyzing it and trying to persuade my reader of my analysis, you know, all that is good on the page and I've worked hard to have those skills. Right. None of that helps in life. You can't, you're not in charge. I learned I'm not in charge. I can't control what's happening to me. You know, I can't control the hand I'm dealt. And I also am a lot less invested than I used to be in analyzing, 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 and then trying to convince people, look at it this way. I mean, I was married to an addict, and I think that right. like one of the fundamental experiences of loving an addict, if it's your parent or child or spouse, whatever, friend, is, you know, just kind of being mystified all the time and being like, wait a minute, this doesn't add up. And there's a lot of time that one spends, I mean, this is not just me, this is what you hear in Al-Anon all the time. Right, right. You spend so much time and energy like trying to build a case and be like, no, 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 really, there's a problem. I can prove it, here's my case. You know, this, right. this, these incidents and these beer cans found, you know, under the bathroom sink and blah, 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 all this equals a problem. But the thing is addicts lie, so it's all a silly game. Like there's no point in trying to make a case. You have to just accept it exactly the way it is and, right. and give up, give and up. You, and you also get at other times sucked into kind of co-create, you know, protecting this thing, like trying to optimistically hope that things well, are course. getting better. Yeah, it's, you know. Because you love someone. Right, sure. Because you love someone and you don't want it, you don't want your loved one to be sick. You want your loved one to be well. Yeah. You know? And so I think what, yeah, so a certain degree of surrender is what all of this gave me. And I'm grateful for that. So, like, was it the case for you that, like, you were ambitious and had early success in your, like, that you basically your life kind of went on the trajectory, if I'm reading this right, that you had hoped it would go on? How did you make it this far without getting knocked on your ass, I guess is what I'm trying to ask. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like I had to experience devastating loss in one form or another when I was 20, when I, you know, like, yeah. Well, no one, I mean, you know, both my parents had cancer and lived. So we dodged that, you know, right. so I hadn't lost a parent. Right. Um, you know, I wouldn't, I, it's not like I had massive success or anything. Yeah. But I mean, I had a career right. and I was, and it was, Things were going it, to plan more. It was more building, or less. Yeah. not, you know, tumbling. So, you know, I, th I mean, I think yours is a good question. How do you get to be 37 years old without realizing that you're not in control and without experiencing devastating loss? And the answer is, I was lucky. I was really lucky, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and I actually still, I mean, not actually, I still consider myself really lucky. I'm really sad that I lost my son. I'm really sad I can't have biological children, but I'm really lucky in about a million other ways, sure. and I try to focus on that. 
I think that's uh, that's a perfect place for us to shift. Now. Okay, let's I'm take, excited. Yeah, let's do yeah. our let's, what we let's do our adventure round. Yeah, the adventure round. I'm excited about it. It's time for the adventure round. Good. Um, this one is Corey Stamper. She's uh, she was in here actually for this show. She's a lexicographer. I have not seen this video. Okay. Um, lexicographer from Merriam-Webster. Okay. And she's talking about the evolution of the word bitch. So that should be interesting. All right. So I was uh, doing some work in our collegiate dictionary, and I was doing some reading in the letter B. And I ran, ran across the entry for bitch. And I noticed that the entry for bitch had many meanings, but didn't actually have any labels on it that said those meanings were offensive or vulgar or derogatory, which really surprised me. So I went through this deep dig through our archives to see why that is. Um, and the, the word bitch uh, was originally used of a female dog. And that goes back all the way into Old English over a 1,000 years. But by about 1400, it had also come to refer to a lewd woman or an immoral woman. And then shortly thereafter, it was also used to refer to a domineering woman or a, a woman who was like a man. And you see this really interesting proliferation of meaning in the 1500s, 1600s, and 1700s, where bitch, when applied to a woman, is always uh, pretty much negative. And bitch is also applied to men at this point, and it's applied to men in a way that feminizes them. So gay men were called bitch back in the 1600s. So what's really fascinating is you see this movement through history, and historical dictionaries did say bitch was the worst thing that you could possibly call a woman. So what happened is I, I really wanted to know why this didn't have a label on it. So I went through and looked back at our defining history, because we have that, all that history in the office. And I found that really from about the 1930s onward, there were different editors who argued, A, that we include any sense that referred to men, because that was important. That was historical use. Those notes were often rejected. And then in the... Uh, 60s, the person who was in charge of editing the entry for Bitch was a woman. And she had included in her notes some strong labels saying that these, th this was an abusive term and, and those got dropped. Just they were dropped for no apparent reason. So, so then we come up into the 90s, which is when the last big revision to the word Bitch was made for our collegiate dictionary. And it gets a uh, usage note. It's not the same as saying it's offensive or vulgar, but we're heading in the right direction. So what's really fascinating is, is you, you see this arc of meaning that is very clearly derogatory. And lexicographers just didn't, I mean, in general, didn't pick it up for a while. I guess I just, to me, I, it, like when I'm thinking about the word bitch, outside of a colloquial context, like watching a video of an etymologist talking about it. I can't not think of bitch in heat, okay. you know? And Dog, or, 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 well, or referring it just, to a woman I in just that think that it brings up, I think there's a primal anxiety around oh. that power, and I don't think that's illogical. It is an awesome, shocking power women can make people 
I mean, that is right. crazy. <laughs> right, right. Like, right. Where I just can't get past it. I know it's like doy, but especially when you do it, especially when you grow a person in your body and then squish them out your vagina, you're like, this is insanity. Like, this is actual insanity. You feel like a witch. Like, this is magic, crazy, epic power. So the idea that, like, there's this, like, disgust and fear and da 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 it's like, on the one hand, you know, it's just, it's misogyny. It's, oh, women are unclean, and if a woman is menstruating, she can't, you know, touch food or be in the room or this, that, the other thing. There's all that misogyny. On the other hand, there's just this kind of, like, primal druidical terror at this power. And it is the craziest power ever. That's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, because I, I, again, like, I, I don't know why I'm like, this is a revelation to me, as you say, it's sort of like a doi, but it's just occurring to me that like, that we, yeah, that men, there's nothing, there's nothing like that. For You men. don't have that magic power. No, we do not. You know, we do not. like, we're awesome. We're great. You can't make people <laughs> and feed them. <laughs> With your tits. No, we can't do that. And, no, it's a magic power. And there's got to be some, yeah, like fear, I mean, jealousy as well. Like, wait a minute, she knows something we don't know, you know? Like, well, well she thinks she's so great, you know, whatever, that that then evolves into... She is so great, name, she named you. <laughs> name calling. and No, but yeah, yeah then yeah. in its negative form evolves into let's let's dismiss that thing, yeah. But then, like, then the male sense of it, the sort of, like, ineffectual man... You're my bitch. ...gay man sense, yeah, like, that doesn't really square with the affective, like, vibe of the... of bitch as applied to women. Like, that's... That doesn't have the power. That, well, that's well the op- because it's what, I mean, it's all inverted. Like right. the idea that we're the weaker sex. Yeah. Like you brew a baby in your body and squeeze it out a hole and then tell me right. I'm weaker. <laughs> right, 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 right. Like it's just a way of, you know, devaluing what women can do. Right. Which is make life. And then there's that other thing, right, that happens with language, and you're a writer, of like reclaiming terms like this, right? Yeah. You know, or like reappropriating the N-word, you know, for, for use like among friends with, uh, for, but black people can do that, I can't. But like, what's weird is that, I mean, going back to the subject of your first book, that kind of got a little mixed up or muddled up, it seems, in the American ma- imagination, that in some way, this kind of like culture of porn you know, as somehow empowering or whatever, like, feels like a reclamation. Like, we're reclaiming, like, women reclaiming or young women reclaiming their power from a system that's objectifying them by objectifying themselves or I don't know, like, can we talk a little bit about that? No. I don't talk, I, everything related to porn in that first book bores me so much I want to cry. Really? Like, I just don't care anymore. I'm just like, whatever, everybody do whatever you want. I just don't care. (laughs) Gotcha. I I mean, I'm just wondering if, like, if you got backlash at that time from people who were like, no, I have every right to do this, and how dare you tell me that it's not a good thing. Of course, but I don't, that's fine. It's not like, it's not like I don't want to talk about it because they hurt my feelings. I don't want to talk about it because I wrote that book 12 years ago. And you've talked about it for 12 years. And I just don't care anymore. I just could give two 
bananas. And we're sort of not there anymore. No, it's yeah, like, yeah. I, w I wish we were there. Now we're in this other... <laughs> where are we now? Somewhere ghastly. Where, where are we now in the... In the well, I mean, I, I woke up this morning and the president told secrets to Russia that he's too stupid to know he shouldn't have... I mean, it's just... A, it's just... It's just... I just can't believe that dude is the president of America. Yeah, no, I was saying, I was, I can't either, and I was saying to my wife this morning that it's like, nothing is really a surprise to me. Like, I, he can't surprise me, but everything he does, it's like always just on this side of legal. So, so it's like, oh, this is an outrage. Oh, wait, I'm allowed to do it, so I did it anyway. There was such a funny thing on Saturday Night Live this week, and where <laughs> Michael Che was being Lester Holt, like doing that interview. And Trump in it, you know, Alec Baldwin as Trump was like, um, no, I did it because of Russia. I fired Comey because of Russia. And Michael Che as Lester Holt was like, wait, did I get him? No, nothing matters. Literally nothing matters. <laughs> and that's what it feels yeah, like. Yeah, yeah, I don't, he's like Teflon. I keep waiting for him to go down, you know, well, with his ship. Well, keep waiting. We right, have if you want to do another six clip, minutes, we and do so it. we'll yeah. do one more. Um, this is Gish Jen talking about imitation in the East, in China. Well, of course, you know, China and the U.S. have very different ideas about intellectual property rights, right? Um, about copying and things like that, imitation. Um, you know, very foundationally, um, things that in the U.S. are completely taboo. Um, in China, it might be wrong or maybe even not legal, but they're not taboo, right? And we can, you can ask yourself, well, why is that? You know, why is... Um, is building a building that looks just like a chateau in France. You know, why do they, we not do that here in the West? We, you know, we might do it, but it'd be an amusement park. It'd be something, you know, if you did, it was, you know, it's tacky, right? So why do we think it's tacky where um, in the East are considered um, fine? So, you know, you can have a, a, a very elaborate um, copy of a, of a French chateau. Um, you can pour $50 million into it. You can use the exact stone that they used in the original and, and you know, and have this copy in every way perfect. And in China, that's seen as a great thing, right? Like no one would say, you're kidding, you spent $50 million on this copy. Um, in the U.S., we would never do that, right? And why is that? It's because we have two different models of self. Quite the contrary, um, you know, if it sees something which is great, it says, well, I'll do that too. You know, it's homage. And this goes right down to the educational level. I mean, so the idea, you know, in, in our education, we're very much trying to coax out of people, you know, their unique vision, right? Um, it, you know, in Asia, the idea that actually there are many great ideas kind of out, out there all around you in your culture, and that maybe before you think about how you can put your own stamp on things, maybe you should absorb those ideas, um, is very important. Well, of course, you know, the whole idea of, um, of ascending and spiritual greatness, I guess, in the East has to do with getting rid of that boundary between you and the cosmos. Right? So it's not about your pit, it's about being pitless, you know, being really just foundationally, hugely pitless. What an interesting thing to use the word pit, pitless. Uh, I love that. I love yeah. the way she put it. And I think that that's very much my aspiration is to try to be pitless. Like, yeah. I, I love 
I could listen to her all day. Wow. I, I wonder, I mean, we have, you know, just like two precious minutes left, but I wonder, like, you know, I think about this a lot, like the way, especially since reading her book, like the way that our culture, especially for people in like the creative expression yeah. worlds, drives us to, drives us in terms of these kind of like, you know, find your unique differentiator, brand yourself, you know, be unlike anything else. Like, I wonder whether, I wonder, you know, for you, like what, how that's been. Well, as a writer, you know, it's like, I always say this, like, I don't have any tricks up my sleeve. It's not like I sit there thinking to myself, oh, I want this to sound like this, or I want this to sound like this, or I gotta be careful this doesn't sound like someone else. All I'm capable of, like, this is the extent of my capability, honestly, is like each, on a sentence to sentence level, I'm just trying to make the best sentence I can. Right. And the best paragraph I can. So you haven't had to worry much about, you haven't spent much time thinking like, let what is Ariel no. Levy? Yeah, I, like, I mean, I, I people who have enough, I, I don't know what, talent or um, mm -hmm. virtuosity that they get to choose between styles or this or that, that's just an experience I can't relate to. I, I, do, I just try to do the very best I can on each sentence and paragraph and then, you know, organize it on a larger level. Right. But I'm not picking between choices of style. Like, I've only got the one. Right. But how about influence? I mean, do you, like, do you trace any kind of lineage? Like, are you like, oh, these are the writers, you know, these are the voices that well, I Well, all I can say and... is who I look up to. Yeah, and that's, that's what I'm saying. Janet Malcolm and... You know, I mean, she's my A number one girl. That's who I, that's who I look up to the most is Janet Malcolm, yeah. She's, she's the journalist that I admire gotcha. the very most. And, and one of the cool things about working at The New Yorker is now I know her. It's so <laughs> exciting. Like, I, find, I think that's the coolest thing. I never get over that, that like, I know her. <laughs> So you do. So you do value being connected within that. It's so cool like, to be able to meet your idol yeah, and be sure. like, "What's up, Janet Malcolm?" <laughs> it's such a cool thing. I love it. All that, right, that's I, our time. Aria Levy, thank you so much for being on our show. Thanks for having me. It was a joy. It was a great pleasure. So that wraps up. Another episode of Think Again, a Big Think podcast, episode 101. We are forging onward into the next uh, century or centennial or some such of the show. Um, and uh, it has been a really interesting time around here. Um, in a recent taping with Alan Alda, that's an upcoming show. Um, the Following something that he said in his book, I just shut my notes in the middle. So instead of sort of checking bullet points and using them to guide the conversation, I just shut them completely. And I really like what happened. And I think I'm gonna try to do that from now on. And uh, you know, let me know what you think. But uh, if you if you wanna write to me, you wanna say anything to me about the show um, or how you're listening, where you're listening, constructive criticism is okay too, especially if it's said really nicely. <laughs> Um, write me at jason at bigthink.com. Uh, that's jason at bigthink.com. And if you haven't had a chance to, and if you love the show, please, please, please rate or review us on iTunes or Google Play. And we'll be back next week with another far-ranging, open-ended conversation on Think Again. <laughs>